Our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us clarity and conviction. Father, show us not only what your word says, but how we may apply it to our lives, remembering that you told us to be holy as you are holy. And so that is our goal today, Lord. Teach us to grow in the likeness of Christ, in his goodness, in his holiness. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you are ever stranded in the wilderness, or maybe you're, you're caught in a burning building, or maybe you even find that your scuba tank just ran out of oxygen and you're way underwater. National Geographic magazine sometimes publishes these rules to keep in mind for survival situations, and there are some kind of fun ones, I guess. Uh, The first, uh, this surprised me, humans can survive two to three minutes without air, but with training, you can actually train to be underwater without air for up to 11 minutes, if you can imagine that. Number two, humans can survive for just 10 minutes at 300 degrees Fahrenheit, and children can only survive for a few minutes at 120 degrees, which I guess is a good reminder to, uh, in the summertime especially, not leave the little ones in the car. Uh, Number three, humans can endure barely 30 minutes of exposure to 40 degree water, if you've ever tried that. If you're ever in Antarctica swimming, you know, you're not going to make it more than 30 minutes. And the fourth one, humans can survive up to seven days without water and can survive about 45 days without food. Now, I don't know about you, but I I find these just kind of amusing. Um, You know, they're they're not necessarily important unless you are out in the wilderness or swimming in, you know, the Arctic Ocean. But the odds are that you will not need to remember any of this stuff because you're never going to find yourself stuck in those types of situations where this type of knowledge is required. They say that the only guarantees in life are death and taxes, but there is one other guarantee, and this is one that we can and should prepare for, and that is temptation. Temptation. Every single one of us, no exceptions, every one of us is tempted to sin, perhaps especially those who are most devout in their faith to Christ, in Christ. The question then is, how long can you endure? How long can you persevere when temptation or trials come into your life? How long can you hold on when trials and temptations invade your life? And they surely will if they haven't already. Our passage from today is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and is titled, Paradise Lost, the Fall from Theocentricity. Anybody remember what theocentric means? God-centered, right. Theo is God, centric is centered, so the, uh, the fall from theocentricity means the fall from God-centeredness. This passage that we're going to be studying today is going to show us what is going on inside of a person when temptation comes, and we'll see that through Christ, we can endure 
trials, and temptations. And by following His example, we can endure trials and temptations. As we study and we learn about some of the mechanics of temptation, we'll consider what the Bible has to say about combating rather than capitulating to temptation. So far in our study, we've seen that Adam was placed in the garden in Eden with the purpose of living theocentrically. That is, his life was intended to be God-centered. Every part of his life centered on God as an offering unto God, as a means of showing worship, giving worship unto God, every aspect of his life. And as a means of blessing Adam, God gave him a woman with whom he could accomplish the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. All of their life, every aspect, including their marriage, was intended to be theocentric, God-centered. As chapter 2 concluded, we saw that life was, was perfect. Adam's life was absolutely perfect. Adam and his wife had all that they needed Everything that they needed, they had intimate fellowship with God. They had a a walk with Him, uninhibited, uh, undivided walk with Him. God had provided them with everything that they would ever need to sustain their physical existence. And the union of Adam and Eve was a perfect, flawless, impeccable living picture of the gospel. The union of Christ and the church as marriage was intended to be, according to Ephesians chapter 5, as we saw last week. Adam was the head of his wife, and together they had dominion over the animals of the planet. Adam and Eve had only listened to God up to this point. And as chapter 2 ended, the world had no sin in it to speak of. It was perfect. It was paradise. Neither Adam nor Eve had to intentionally set aside time out of each day to pray or to intentionally designate a time of the day for devotion because all of life for them was theocentric. All of it. Their entire lives were a living sacrifice unto God. But what we'll see today is that the order of God's creation is going to be flipped upside down and God's order in creation will be usurped. So we start with Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, reading about the fall from theocentricity. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. So the passage starts with the word now, which isn't a super significant word, but what it does do is it indicates that this is a new scene. If you were to to be filming a movie or something like that, this would be the next scene. You might say scene one was, was God creating everything in the universe. Scene two was God putting Adam in the garden and instructing him to work and to keep the land. Scene three may have been God perfecting his creation by giving the man a woman to be his wife and helper. And now we're at scene four. This is the next scene. There's been an unspecified amount of time that's passed since the last verse. And if you know me, I don't like to speculate a whole lot where the text is silent. So it's just an unspecified amount of time that's passed since the last verse. Maybe it's been five minutes. Maybe it's been five years. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. 
But here we see immediately that the serpent is introduced. And we're told that he was not only crafty, but that he was more crafty than the other beasts of the field. And by crafty, we don't mean that he was an expert at quilting blankets or that he could, you know, he could sit on Pinterest all day long and, you know, find various crafts to do. No, it means that he was shrewd. It means that he had some wisdom as it pertained to being able and knowing how to manipulate and get his way. So this gives us something of an insinuation that the beasts of the field were all capable of speaking and communicating with one another, and perhaps also with Adam and Eve. And it doesn't say that no other animals were crafty, it just says that the serpent was more crafty. And we should note that Moses is underscoring something for us here. It's almost redundant, the fact that God created the serpent. If you notice, he, he says it again. He says it right there for us. We might think that this is something obvious, that it's a detail that doesn't need to be added, perhaps, except that for somebody who doesn't know much or anything about God, this is not insignificant, and that's not obvious. The point is that we know that this was a beast over which God was sovereign. This was a beast over which God had full authority. This was not another God. This was not God's equal. It was not equal to him in any way. God had sovereign authority over the serpent. None is God's equal. Now, some have proposed that the serpent was possessed by demons. Uh, Some have simply thought that the serpent itself was not possessed by any spirit, but was just inherently evil. But we learn who this is in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where we read this. Uh, John writes for us in, in Revelation 12, 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. We read further on in Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, where John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Mystery solved. We know who this is. This is none other than Satan. Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us that Satan was a guardian cherub angel who was exceedingly beautiful and who corrupted his wisdom for the sake of splendor. Isaiah 14 tells us that Satan desired equality with God. And look at what the serpent says to the woman. Look at what he asks her. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And there's part of me that wants to think that he's just kind of setting her up to say something like, Eve, let's make Eden great again. But a better idea might be to build a wall, a huge wall to keep out all the serpents. All, all kidding aside, of course, what the serpent's saying here is setting her up. And it's absolutely ludicrous. If God had told Adam and Eve not to eat of any tree in the garden, well, what were they supposed to eat? That's what he had specifically designated for them to eat. This is a blatant 
twisting of God's word. And it has a lot of implications in it. What he says carries a lot of connotations. It implies that God is cruel. It implies that God is doing less than providing fully for the needs of Adam and the woman. The attack is on God's word, which is sort of ironic since God's word was the source of every blessing that Adam and his wife had been given. Now we know that this is not what God had commanded. We saw back in chapter 2, this is not what he said. It's close, but yet so far. What God had said back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, is you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this may help us understand a little bit why the serpent has approached Adam's wife rather than coming to Adam himself. She wasn't there when Adam was given the instructions regarding this tree. She wasn't even in existence yet. It was only Adam. So it's possible that Satan knew that Adam hadn't given her the exact knowledge, the exact instruction that she would have needed. That's possible. It's possible also that she was just more compassionate and open-minded than Adam. Whatever the case, the serpent has a tone that we can't miss. It's almost a tone of, of shock and disgust. At what? At God's character. It's as if he's completely revolted by the fact that God could be so cruel. And with his words, he not only twists and corrupts what God has said, but he's also introduced a new assumption to Eve, a very, very, very dangerous assumption that we would be wise to avoid as well, and that is that God's goodness is subject to our judgment, or that God's word is subject to our moral judgment. That is absolutely false. That is absolutely false. We do not have the right to measure God's goodness with our own yardstick. This verse by itself, chapter 3, verse 1, reminds us how important it is to use discernment. To measure everything against the Word of God, against what God has said. And discernment goes beyond simply knowing what is true and what's false. That's important. It's important to know what's true and false. But it's maybe even more important that we be able to distinguish between what's true and what's almost true. That's where we need the strongest discernment. That's where the enemy attacks because that's where his greatest chance of success is found. Not in telling us something that is absolutely false, but in trying to get us to believe something that's almost true. Remember this, a half-truth is still a lie. And the fact is that Satan is still the enemy of God today. He still does this today. He's still cunning. He's still attempting to distort and twist the Word of God Paul tells us that Satan even disguises himself as an angel of light. He doesn't come as the boogeyman. He doesn't have red horns and a forked tail. No, he's more likely to show up looking like your best friend or the guy who lives next door. And he is doing this as a means 
of catching us with our guard down. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he try to tempt us? So that he can cast doubt on God's character or integrity in our minds. So that he can subtly misrepresent and twist God's word. So that he can either undermine our confidence in God's word or tempt us to maybe even completely neglect God's word. Because if we don't trust God's word, listen, if we don't trust God's word, we don't trust God. And that's what it comes down to. If we don't trust God's word, we don't trust God. And if we neglect God's word, we are neglecting God. And once we abandon trust or neglect God's word, we have given up the one thing that will protect us from theological half-truths. That is, half-truths pertaining to God, which are still complete lies, by the way. The point here is that the devil isn't going to be straightforward with you. The enemy of God is going to subtly try to deceive you. He would love to deceive you. And if you are not anchored firmly in God's word, you are like a ship without a rudder caught in an undercurrent that's leading you to a vortex of sure disaster. You're drifting into danger. You are cruising toward catastrophe. You're like, it's like you're driving down the road at 100 miles an hour and your hands are off the steering wheel. Nothing, nothing is more sure and steadfast than an understanding of Scripture when it comes to the enemy of God trying to tempt you, trying to wreak havoc on your faith. You need God's Word to anchor you down when temptation comes. So our first key today to overcoming temptations and trials is to know God's Word. Know God's Word. Think about it. If you don't know what God's Word says, you don't know how He feels about things. If you don't know what God has said is right and wrong, how do you know if what you're doing lines up with what He has said is right and wrong? How do you know if your values, your choices line up with what He would have you do? How do you know what's pleasing to Him? If you are not rooted in God's Word, the answer is you don't know the answers to any of those questions. Eve was not prepared to do battle. Her guard was down. So let's look at how she responds. Verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 we read, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. There are so many things wrong with this. Response. It's difficult to know where exactly to even begin. Let's start with the fact that she responded to Satan at all. She responded to the serpent at all. Instead of closing the door on this conversation, she commits three tragic errors that are deadly to our understanding of God's Word. She revises it in three different ways. First, she subtracts from God's Word. Next, she adds to God's Word. And then she minimizes God's word. So let's look at what she says first. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. God's instruction back in chapter 2 verse 16 was that she and Adam may surely eat of 
every tree in the garden. She has subtracted some emphasis there. She has subtracted the word that emphasizes the overwhelming abundance of God's blessing upon them, of their provision. And this might seem like just a minor detail to leave out this, this one word, but it's an important detail. And her omission of this key word reveals a lot about what's going on inside her heart at this point. So she subtracts from God's word here. Next, she adds to God's word, saying that God had instructed them by saying, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Neither shall you touch it. Where did that even come from? Where did God say that? God didn't say that. He had only forbidden them from eating from it. So where did she get this idea that they were not even to touch it? Well, it's possible, again, that Adam had instructed her carelessly or too casually, that he had misrepresented God, uh, God's word, God's instructions in some way. We know that Adam is there with her, and he doesn't step in to rebuke the serpent. But either way, even if he didn't instruct her properly, which is a possibility, the fact is, if she was unclear on the instructions, she could have gone straight to God for clarification. He was, he was more than available to her, and she didn't go to him to seek clarity. If she was unclear on the instructions, she had a way to find clarity, and yet she didn't. So what we see is that by adding this clause, she has overstated God's strictness. She's made God sound kind of like a bully, a cosmic bully. She's made him sound much more harsh than he actually is. She's turned herself into something of a victim here. And isn't this exactly human nature when we don't like a rule? You tell a child that they can't have any more cookies before bedtime, and they go crying to the other parent, Daddy told me I could never have cookies again. <laughs> right? You tell them that they're going to go to bed with no dinner if they don't clean up, and it's, Mommy's trying to kill me, you know, stuff like that. And how about this, though? An employer is noticing that merchandise is going missing, and so they institute a policy that purses and pockets need to be emptied before leaving, and somebody in the corporation is bound to complain that this is an invasion of privacy. You take a stand against sin in our culture, and those who love the sin that you stand against will claim that you're phobic. You see how the human tendency is to exaggerate. It's to make ourselves into victims. There's a very real danger, friends, that if you don't understand the tension between God's grace and the obedience that God demands from us, if you don't understand the tension between gospel and law, you may think that his commandments are too restricting. You may think that his commandments ask too much of us. Do you ever find yourself overstating God's calling you to a life of perfect holiness as He is holy? As being ridiculous? Or as being impossible? Or as being just completely unrealistic? Maybe you think it's just figurative. Maybe it's, it's less than literal. Beware, 
beware of harboring that attitude. Take it to the Lord immediately. Repent, confess, and thank Him for His grace. Thank Him for His patience and ask that He would work in you to grow you in holiness the way that only He can. So Eve subtracted from God's Word. She added to God's Word. And next she's going to minimize God's Word. She says that the consequence of disobedience is lest you die. Again... That's close, but it's so far. God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. There's a certain and immediate consequence for disobedience. And neither the certainty nor the immediacy of God's word is reflected in what Eve says here. We saw that the first principle of battling temptation is to know God's Word. The second principle is to know God's Word. Seriously, know it. Memorize it. Study it. Wrestle with it. Even the things that are hard to understand. And when you don't understand it, or if it seems unreasonable, you don't just assume that God's a cosmic bully. You go to Him for clarification. Yeah, even today, go to Him for clarification. The Apostle James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's from James chapter 1, verse 5. Paul tells us that we are to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. That's from Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. What, what do you think that means? To let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. It means that we must know God's Word. The psalmist declares in Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your Word in my heart. For what purpose? That I might not sin against you. Chapter 119 of Psalms. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and the theme is knowing God's Word and wanting to know God's Word, and loving the knowledge and the understanding of God's Word, and our reliance on God for that understanding. I cannot emphasize this enough. You must know God's Word if you want to stand a chance when temptation comes, when trials come, and they will if they haven't already. So Eve has subtracted from God's Word, she's added to God's Word, and she has minimized God's Word. The serpent now responds. We continue by reading verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at the first words out of the serpent's mouth as he responds. He says, you will not surely die. What was that word that Eve had left out? Surely. Eve left that word out, but the serpent deliberately includes it. He's indicating something that we would be very wise to take note of, and that is that he knows what God has said. And that should scare you. That should 
drive you to study what God has said so that the enemy of God has no way to deceive you by twisting the word of God. And in this response by the serpent, by Satan, we see four lies straight from the devil's mouth. Four lies. The first lie is that there is no penalty for sin. There is no penalty for sin. He's telling Eve that if she eats of this tree, if she eats this fruit, if she blatantly disobeys what God has specifically commanded, it'll be inconsequential. There won't be a punishment for sin. Let me tell you what brings me to a point where I'm I'm not even sure if, if my heart is broken or if my blood is boiling, and that is when people who profess to be Christians promote this same idea, that sin is inconsequential. Whether it's with marriage or gender identity or drunkenness or fornication, whatever it is, I find it greatly, deeply Disturbing when self-professing Christians take the approach that sin is inconsequential. Jesus warned the people of his time that the religious leaders who lied did so because they were doing what their father, the devil, does. And for that reason, there is good reason to deeply scrutinize the profession of faith of the person who believes that God does not punish sin and that sin is inconsequential. The first lie recorded in the pages of the Bible, here it is, that is the first lie in the Bible. It's the denial of sovereign, divine judgment. The second lie is the implication then that God is a liar. God had said that if they were to eat of the fruit on that day, they would surely die. The serpent is calling God a liar by saying that death would not be a real consequence. See, it's impossible for both God and the serpent to be correct, right? At the same time. Do you see and understand that? They cannot both be right. Unlike our culture today, which says that truth is just whatever you believe to be true. No, truth is what corresponds with reality. And the reality is, Scripture tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8. Which means that Satan, the serpent, is the liar here. And his lie is calling God a liar. The third lie is that their eyes would be opened. And and this is one of those places where we find a half-truth. Yeah, in a sense, it's true. Their, their eyes would be opened in the sense that they would gain a greater sense of self-awareness. But the full truth is that they would be blinded, spiritually speaking. How ironic that they want their eyes to be open and yet their eyes, the eyes of their heart, will be shut. Spiritual blindness would be the default setting, if you will, for all of their offspring from birth. The fourth lie is the implication that God is preventing them from doing this because he's trying to protect his position. 
It's the implication that God is intentionally holding them back. The insinuation here is that the reason God didn't want them to eat from this tree was because He viewed them as a threat to Himself. And so He had instructed them not to eat from the tree of good and evil knowledge for the sake of His own self-preservation. As if it was in God's best interest that they not eat from the tree, but it's not in the best interest for Adam and Eve. And once again, the serpent is casting doubt on God's integrity. He's attacking God's character here. How many of you know that God's commandments aren't there to be a burden? They are there for our own good, they're there for our protection. Because sin is harmful in ways that we don't always see, that we don't always understand in the heat of the moment. I remember one time, not long after Christina and I got married, you might remember this, we went fishing up in the mountains outside of Denver, Colorado. And as we're pulling up, you know, getting close to the spot where, you know, we were going to throw out our lines, I, I was so excited. You know how you get so excited when you're going fishing and you're, you're close And so when we were only about a mile or so away, we came to some train tracks. And the lights were flashing and, you know, the arms had gone down. And I looked both directions and I could see the train way, way off in the distance. It was far away. And I was young and I was stupid. And so I decided to go anyway, that I was going to go across the tracks between the arms. Let me tell you, I had no idea how fast that train was going. I had no idea how fast it was going. But that train started whistling at me. And as we got to the other side of the tracks and out of harm's way, I could feel the vibrations of the train going right by us. I mean, we missed it by a second maybe two seconds. It was a stupid, stupid move on my part. You know, I I think I was 25 at the time. But the point is, those flashing lights that seemed like just kind of a pain to me, an inconvenience, those arms that were just kind of slowing me down, those were there for my protection. And that's how God's Word works. His commandments are there for our own good, for our protection, to keep us from harming ourselves or from harming others. That's the purpose of His commandments. So the first principle of our passage today is to know God's Word. The second principle is, seriously, know God's Word. The third is to use it. The third is to use it. Don't just... Don't let it just be head knowledge. Don't just store it up in your mind like you've got this library of information up there that's totally separate from the rest of your being. Put it into action. Let it affect the way you live. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, what did he do in response to being tempted? He used Scripture. He quoted it. That was his defense. That was his stronghold in the midst of his temptation. The good news is, where Adam failed, Jesus prevailed. Where Adam failed, 
Jesus was victorious. He prevailed. And that is a model for us to follow, friends, when we're confronted with temptation. Know God's word. Use it. And keep this in mind. While the devil might be difficult to identify since he does disguise himself as an angel of light, the testimony of Scripture seems to make abundantly clear for us that one of the ways that we can recognize him or his influence is that he comes claiming to have a way that's better or a plan that's better than God's. He'll say God's word isn't good. He'll say you've got a better idea of what's good or what's not. He'll say you've got a better plan than God has. And once you start believing that God's plans and his purposes aren't supremely good, the greatest good, and aren't beneficial to us in any way, shape, or form, you are like a fish on the devil's hook. Know what God commands. Know that those boundaries are in place for our good, for our protection. God's ways are always, always, always better than our ways or anyone else's ways. Trust that. Know that. Believe that. But most importantly, act on that. Eve didn't. Neither did Adam. So we continue. Verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So it starts with Eve seeing that this is good for food, that the the fruit from the tree of good and evil knowledge is good for food. But this word good, I don't think she understands exactly what good means. Who says that it's good? Who determines that anything is good? God does. God determines what's good. And only God has the right to determine what is good. Maybe it's good in the sense that it's edible to eat, edible for for consumption, uh, tastes delicious. But the effects, the effects of it are anything but good. This isn't good at all. But where does it start? It starts with her setting her mind on something that God has forbidden The fact is that what we set our minds on will have a much, much greater effect on our actions than we likely realize. And so we must be careful about what it is we're setting our minds on. And there's a ton of tragic irony here. In an attempt to gain godly wisdom, they gain foolishness. They come to the tree with everything and they leave with nothing in what is unquestionably the worst exchange of all time. Two words are given to describe the tree here in verse 6. First, it was a delight, and secondly, it was to be desired. And we actually find those exact same words in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, where we read this. 
and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, etc., etc. Same Hebrew words get translated as covet and desire here. Delight and desire, to delight is to covet in this sense. The point is, Adam and Eve have coveted. They're guilty of coveting. Now, you might be under the the impression that coveting is not a very serious sin. After all, we are exposed to it every single day. That's what ads on TV are for. That's what billboards are for. It's all geared toward causing us to covet. But if we understand what's going on here, we see that covetousness is an awful, ugly sin with tremendous consequences. Everything has gone wrong here. The woman follows the serpent. Adam follows the woman. And nobody is following God. The created order was that man would be head of his wife and they would have dominion over the animals. But the order is completely reversed here. Instead of it being God, man, woman, and somewhere down here, animals, it's all flipped upside down. Now you've got the animals over Eve, over Adam, and God is ignored. The real shocker here is maybe the fact that Adam has been in the background the whole time. He's been watching all this play out, and I do believe it's intentional that we're just now introduced to his presence. We should be surprised when we realize that he's been there the whole time. We should be revolted. We should be disgusted by the fact that he was there just passively letting all of this play out, all of this transpire. And yet, Scripture tells us that Adam was not even deceived. Adam was not deceived by the serpent. Eve was. But Adam did this out of rebellion. This is what Paul confirms for us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul writes, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. This is heartbreaking. We see that there was rebellion brewing up in Adam's heart and that the result was that he sinned willfully. He sinned gladly. He sinned without any sense of apprehension. Maybe he was curious about how serious God was about the covenant he had established and the consequences of breaking the covenant. And so he decided to to set Eve up and let her give it a shot and see what happened. After all, Adam had plenty of ribs left over if God did strike her dead on the scene. But instead of dying physically... Instead of dying physically, they died spiritually. Instead of being instantly filled with wisdom, they're instantly filled with shame. The fall from theocentricity was immediate, and they could sense it with every cell within them. And it is impossible, it is absolutely impossible to communicate the depths of what was lost here. They had everything that they ever could have needed, and yet they longed for more and ended up losing it all, losing paradise, losing innocence, losing their intimate fellowship with God, losing everything that sustained them up to this point. 
the question that we have to ask ourselves is what do you desire more in life than to please and obey God? What do you want in life more than pleasing God? What do you love? What do you set your mind on? What do you long for that you don't have? What do you live for? This is one of the most important things that we can ask ourselves because what we love the most, even if it's only in theory, is what we will worship in practice. So what do you set your mind on? What you do have or what you don't have? What God has blessed you with or what you wish God would bless you with? And make no mistake about it, friends. We cannot say that we would have done any differently here than Adam and Eve. If we had only one command to keep, we would break it. Jesus was once asked what the greatest commandment is, and he said it's that you love the Lord God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. That is the greatest commandment. And thus to break it is to commit the greatest possible sin. Worse than murder, worse than you name it. Whatever you think is the worst sin, this is worse to neglect to love God the way that he has instructed us to love him. Have you ever failed to uphold this command? Of course you have. Of course you have. We all have. And thus every one of us deserves the same verdict from God. Guilty. And yet, while you and I have failed to uphold this command, Jesus never failed to uphold this command. Not for one second. He never sinned. He never strayed from the will of the Father. He submitted His will in obedience to the Father every second of every day, of every month, of every year of His life. And so He was the only one who ever lived and yet did not sin. He was blameless. He was without blemish, without fault. And yet, the Father's will, which Jesus stayed within at all times, the Father's will was also to crush his Son. The one whom God would promise in the verses in Genesis that follow here, the one that he would promise to send, his Son would be the one to whom the Father would impute or transfer the sins of all who would believe in Him, placing saving faith in Him. He would bear the wrath of God against the sins and the transgressions of His people, and in exchange, He would impute, He would transfer His perfect, perfect righteousness to all who would believe, thereby redeeming a people for Himself. Adam and Eve exchanged everything for nothing. And this nothing is what the sinner stands before God holding. Nothing. No defense. No excuses. No explanations. Only guilt and shame. And yet the gospel. 
is that we can receive forgiveness. We can receive redemption. We can receive the very righteousness of Christ by repenting and believing in Him. If you will place saving faith in Him. God has promised that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a promise. It is a promise. Reflecting on this truth, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. He said, but the free gift, talking about salvation, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, who's he talking about there? He's talking about Adam. He's talking about Adam's one sin, this initial sin. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Friends, we live in a world that is falling apart. In fact, every day it feels, it seems, it looks like it's falling more and more apart. And yet we must remember, we must live with the thought in mind, the promise in mind, that God has promised to redeem it. And that's what he's doing even today. That's what God is doing even to this day. And he'll be doing it tomorrow and the next. He'll be doing it until Christ comes again in glory. And you might look around today and you might fail to see that God is redeeming everything for his glory. You might not see it. It might not look like it. But we have to remember that the perceived gap, the perceived chasm between God's promises and our current reality is bridged by faith in the one who is sovereign over it all. We endure temptation by looking to Christ and by remembering to trust in the promises of God and to trust in the God of the promises. No matter how difficult it might be, no matter what. Friends, God does not promise His people a life that's free of trials and temptations. But he does promise that the victory is his and through him, ours. He promises us something better than a life without trials and temptations. He promises us himself, all of himself that we could possibly want and a life in which he will never abandon us or forsake us. A life in which our ability to live theocentrically is restored by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Friends, there is an enemy of God who seeks to undo us. But if you are a child of God, then everything that you do, everything that you experience, everything that happens to you, it's all under God's sovereign reign. And God promises that His purposes in the lives of His children will be fulfilled. 
Nothing can separate you from Him. And God is causing everything that you do, everything that happens to you, every aspect of our lives, even the trials and the hardships and the temptations, to work for our good. For our good. Nothing bad can happen to you if you're a child of God because God is sovereign over it all. And what's the good that all things are working toward? What is the great good? Growing us in the likeness of Christ. So resist temptation. Resist it. Flee from it. Remember God's Word. Know God's Word. Use God's Word. Resist temptation. Resist covetousness. Resist the desire to have things that you don't have. Find contentment in God's providential blessings in your life. And instead, desire the things that God would have us desire. The fruit of the Spirit. A closer walk with Christ. A deeper and stronger faith. A greater knowledge of His Word. And a more profound obedience. This is how we prepare for and endure temptation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we all must confess, Lord, that even those of us who have studied it and memorized it, we have failed to live up to what it demands of us. And for that reason, Lord, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for the Gospel that You sent Christ to fulfill the law, to uphold the law, to walk perfectly in, in obedience to your will, and that he would impute his righteousness to us and take our sin upon himself. We give you glory for that, Lord. Teach us to resist temptation. Teach us to live lives that are obedient, that are pleasing to you, that glorify you in accordance with what your word would instruct us to do. Give us stronger faith and give us contentment. Lead us away from temptation and deliver us from the evil. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission 
of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.